corrupted nerds ensconced in the twilight of their bedroom, whether it be in Paris, Singapore, Lagos, Bucharest, or indeed even Sydney. And from Sydney or nearby, welcome to Corrupted Nerds Conversations, episode 12. Today, data retention, the European experience. Now, the Australian government will soon introduce legislation making it compulsory for telecommunications companies to record the data about your use of their services for up to two years and make it available to law enforcement and intelligence agencies. Attorney General George Brandis tries to portray this as inevitable. This is very much the way in which uh, Western nations are going. It's been the case in Europe under the European Data uh, Retention Directive for some little while now. What he doesn't say is that the European Court of Justice has declared such untargeted surveillance to be a breach of human rights. They said, well, not only can we not see why it's necessary for security, we also say that it's completely disproportionate to any gains in security that we might be getting. But surely we have to fight terrorists and other threats to our security, right? Well, our guest today says those threats are all a bit vague. What we call at Privacy International Nazi pedos, which is just like a general, all-encompassing, like, bad person who lives on the internet. That's Carly Neist, our guest today on Corrupted Nerds, a podcast about information, power, security and all the cybers in a global internet revolution that's changing everything. I'm rather taken with the phrase Nazi pedos. Hi, I'm Stilgerian. Welcome once again to uh, this increasingly erratic podcast. Uh, Back in July, the Attorney General announced that he was going to introduce three blocks of national security legislation, or tranches as he prefers to call them. Now, the first one increased the power of ASIO, the Australian Security and Intelligence Organisation. It extended the definition of computer networks to make it easier for their users to be surveilled. It gave the Attorney-General the power to declare something a Special Intelligence Operation, or SIO, and... ASIO officers on an SIO are allowed to break the law in various ways, although not seriously. They can't cause serious injury or death and and certainly no sexual crimes. But everything about an SIO is secret, well, forever, with severe jail penalties for anyone who leaks information. And that includes journalists. It's been controversial. Uh, That uh, first tranche also sorted out a few things regarding uh, employment conditions for ASIO officers and other uh, completely uncontroversial items. Or that legislation is now law. It passed with minimal debate, and it seems... Few politicians actually bothered reading the thing before voting for it, and some of them are now complaining after the fact. Well, thanks for that, guys. Uh, The second tranche is about... Uh, The so-called foreign fighters, it's supposed to deal with the risk of, say, someone becoming radicalised, going overseas to learn weapon skills and coming back to Australia to be a terrorist. That uh, block of legislation has been tabled in Parliament. It's currently going through the process. Watch this space. The third tranche is going to be about metadata, telecommunications data, 
mandatory data retention. It's called various things, but it's potentially the most controversial of all. And this is like a live political issue in Australia right now. So it's kind of handy that today's guest was back in Australia. Carly Neist is now based in London, where she's Privacy International's legal director, and she heads up their international advocacy. Last week, Electronic Frontiers Australia, in conjunction with the Australian Privacy Foundation, held an event in Sydney which was, as this episode is entitled, Data Retention, The European Experience. And the format was uh, Carly Neist in conversation, uh, in conversation with, well, me. So that's what you're going to hear today. It's a little bit different from uh, a normal Corrupted Nerds conversation in that there's an audience and the audience gets to ask questions. So it does go on a bit longer. It runs for about an hour. Now, apart from talking about the European experience, we also talked about the, the historical balance between our individual rights as humans and the need to have some sort of surveillance as security, about the current blurring of law enforcement and intelligence and national security, so it makes it harder to discuss, uh, about how much of Edward Snowden's revelations are real as opposed to aspirational, and whether the idea of... Uh, The fact that Western countries have robust democratic institutions makes us immune to the kind of uh, obsessive surveillance that happened in places like East Germany uh, when the Stasi were in operation. Now, we we start off pretty uh, fast-paced. Carly Neist came fresh from an appearance on ABC TV's The Drum. We do refer to that. I uh, mentioned that Kerry Chikorovsky threw her a question. Chikorovsky was former leader of the Liberal Party in South Australia, I said. Uh, Well, she was actually head of the the Liberal Party in New South Wales, so I don't know what sort of alternative uh, universe I was channelling there. Sorry about that. Uh, And you will hear us refer occasionally to a John who provides some uh, commentary from the sidelines. That's John Lawrence from Electronic Frontiers Australia. Well, this conversation was recorded on the 15th of October 2014 in Sydney, Australia. Do enjoy. Thanks very much, John. And uh, everyone, please welcome Carly uh, back to Australia <laughs> and for a time on this uh, midweek night. Uh, as John said, we'll, we'll, we'll keep this informal, but there are a few things I thought it might be interesting for us to get out of the way first and a bit of a background. Now, the, the evening is uh, entitled The European Experience. And, and what I think is interesting here, Carly, is to look at the history of this because I think it's important that people understand that the idea of online surveillance hasn't just magically come out of someone's head in the last few years, but it's part of a a long tradition. Right. In the European context, surely, I I, I guess the key thing is the Council of Europe Convention on Cybercrime. Uh, Well... Uh, actually, the, the laws that re- relate to data retention came in a more... Discre- um, de- cybercrime um, convention certainly relevant, but the laws relating to data retention came in a directive that the UK government really spearheaded um, in 2006. And they tried to get it through domestic law in, in the UK in 2001, um, and they couldn't get it through the parliaments there. And so 
they, when they became the president of the European Parliament in 2006, then they were like, well, if we make it a European data uh, re- directive, then the domestic jurisdictions of each of the European countries has to implement it. So we'll get it to our parliament that way. So basically, they kind of circumvented their own parliament by going through the European um, system and got it through in 2006 as part of Europe-wide law. So So that's the European Data Data Retention Retention Directive. Directive, Exactly. And the way that um, European law works is if it's a directive, it basically says here are are the compulsory bits that all European states have to implement and here are the optional bits. So So, for example countries could choose how long they wanted data retention to be for. So Germany chose to do it for six months, UK chose to do it for a year, etc. So this is the kind of usual federated framework where it says, okay, all you guys have to have laws. What's in the law specifically is up to you and your national circumstance, but it has to include this thing and this thing and something about that. Exactly. So that's what they brought in 2006. It pretty much got rolled out in practice around early 2008 across Europe. And in a number of countries, people filed constitutional challenges straight away. And by uh, the next year, the court in Germany had ruled that it was an unconstitutional violation of privacy rights. And so in Germany was the first country to see data retention go in Europe in 2010. Um, and then this, this challenge got lodged um, with the um, Court of Justice of the European Union, so the European-wide court. And that decision came down in April, and that court said, in fact... The whole d- direct data retention directive, sorry, is in itself a violation of the right to privacy, and we're declaring it invalid. So what that means is now in 26 countries across Europe, um, data retention has to be repealed because the data retention directive, which was the impetus for data retention laws in each of those countries, has been ruled to be um, a really invasive violation of privacy, basically. The court said that anything that's an indiscriminate blanket collection of data. And they weren't looking at how long for. They were just saying the indiscriminate nature of this of this law makes it fundamentally a really big threat to individuals' privacy and protection of their personal data. So that didn't matter whether the country had the ISPs retaining the data or a government agency retaining the data. Did we, or did we even see that kind of variation? Um, they looked... So that it did differ slightly across countries they were looking at specifically the Irish um, Mm -hmm. context in this case because it was an Irish case but what their ruling was more of an overarching statement about data retention generally being generally a very big risk to privacy Um, and there being generally no very good reason why we need it so the court looked at evidence that was brought before it about um, you know what what are the security gains that we get from from keeping records of people's internet um, usage and, and phone usage and the court said well there's been not very compelling evidence brought before us about why this is a, is a necessary uh, policy and the way European human rights law and human rights law generally works is that you're asked why is it necessary and how is it proportionate to the harm that it's causing and so they said well not only can we not see why it's necessary for security we also say that it's completely disproportionate to any gains in security that we might be getting. Now is that because there was an absence of evidence that it had a 
a beneficial effect for law enforcement, or was yeah. there evidence that it didn't have an effect? If you yeah, so, so it's a really tough area around which to find evidence. Because we're kind of for, in a, an information vacuum right, for a lot of this. Exactly, yeah. because what the intelligence services do is often secret, um, and uh, that's a problem um, worldwide, that there's not a lot of accountability. So um, that's part of the problem. There is There was one study done that showed when Germany got data retention at the start of 2008 and then removed it in the, in the mid-2010. Um, they studied the crime rates before, during and after data retention. Not only the crime rates, but the, what's called the crime clearance rate. So when you get a case, how quickly you're able to solve it and move on. Or, or and, indeed, do you solve it? Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And they found no effect of data retention at all on that process. So um, I think that's that's quite a compelling argument. Of course, the counter to that is, well, we're not so interested in law enforcement. We're more interested in national security threats and trying to understand cyber crimes and of the inevitable trump cards of pedophiles and terrorists, like what we call at Privacy International Nazi pedos, which is just like a general all-encompassing like bad person who lives on the internet. Um, so that's really where I guess that they're saying we, we know that we're solving these things, but we can't tell you what we're doing because to tell you would reveal our capabilities, etc. So you get well, stuck there, in there. There is an argument for that. I mean, I, I, mm. I don't want to get into specifics, yep. but, but if I'm going after the bad guys, the Nazi pedos, which is, yeah. you know, obviously they are bad people, if they know that I can, hypothetical example, I can record their voices while they're in a moving car on the autobahn, right. then... If they know that, they will stop having their Nazi pedo conversations in moving cars <laughs> on the autobahn. Yeah. So yeah. That, that is a, yeah, that I think is a valid that, I think argument there is at one level. some concern there about um, revealing capabilities and pushing people underground. At the same time, I think that it's massively overstated to justify these policies. And even if it is the case... What we're, what we're being asked to do is ourselves, innocent, you know, law-abiding citizens, to, to, to sacrifice our own liberties, our, our own rights, in the vague hope that it will somehow catch these handful of Nazi pedos who are out there. And I think we're just not... I think that we have to... If we're going to accept that, that... And that may be a sacrifice we're willing to make, actually. Like, perhaps we as an Australian society say, well, we know they've caught 10 terrorists this year... And, and we're accepted. We accept that we'll have a pub. The internet will become a public space. We have no longer any privacy. But for ten terrorist attacks being averted, we'll accept that. But we don't even have that information. We have the most vague allusions to mm. the security that we're gaining. And I don't know if many of you followed after the Snowden things. The NSA was pushed to come out with the amount of terrorist attacks that it had averted through um, bulk, bulk collection, and they came out with a number of fifty-two. And then after much interrogation, much back and forth in the media, it turned out that the metadata had only been decisive in two of those cases over the preceding maybe five years, I'm not entirely sure. And I think that that's a very telling statistic. If the NSA that is trawling the internet, collecting every data on every internet user, is using that information and it's only essential in two cases... I don't think that that's a proportionality it's equation. Not, it's not a good cost-benefit analysis, Right, exactly, is it? exactly. It makes sense. Okay, well, look, we've spoken there a lot about Europe. Mm. The thing about Europe is that they have privacy laws. They have human rights laws. Right. So presumably there's quite specific stuff about the way Europe is set up. Right. And that makes that easier to fight. And also... It's the European experience. Now, let's get the Godwin out of the way. 
Mm. You know, we do have to say that Central Europe had an experience right. called World War II where right. comprehensive recording of data about the citizens did not turn out well. Right. So, yeah. I think that that's a very... You see countries like Germany. I mean, the German people have taken to the streets since Snowden. There are protests in Berlin. I mean, Berlin being a very unique well, city Berlin. generally. Yeah. I mean, people have nothing better to do because they don't have jobs. But at the same time... I live there, so I say that with all the... Um, <laughs> compassion in my heart but um you know that that's a country in which people have really been enraged about this mm. issue because i think that they see it you know they they have that national experience they mm. understand why um this is such a problematic thing now contrast the uk where i live where there's you can't walk five meters without being seen by 10 cctv cameras the NHS has provided an amazing welfare state for, for the British people. There's a lot of trust in the government. Also, they really like James Bond and they have this, like, you know, culture of, like, the spies are good, the spies work in our... Well, from James Bond to the series Spooks to yeah, any right. manner that... Sure, there's some rough characters in there, but yeah. by and large, they're smart, good people dealing with personal problems Right. For the defence of the realm, which I, which I don't want to say that they're not smart, good people. I think that it's probably true that they are smart, good people. But I think giving them unfettered power is always going to result in really problematic actions, and well, that's what we see. With well, this is this is part of the argument, is it? That I, I um, have had a number of uh, quiet and some less quiet arguments with our former communications minister, Senator Stephen Conroy, about this sort of thing, and he has berated me for being paranoid that Australia has a robust democratic system, we have institutions, how can I possibly imagine mm. that we'll all turn into Nazis tomorrow and suppress the population? And indeed, on television earlier on the drum, uh, the former leader of the Liberal Party in South Australia, Kerry Chikorovsky, did come straight out of the gate and said to you, in response to your piece in The Guardian today... I take offence at being compared to the Stasi. We're not secret yeah. police trying to suppress people in this country. It's national security and law enforcement. Do you? Mm. What, I mean, what is your view of that? Look, we, we do exist within a kind of richer structure, a richer democratic framework than 1933 Germany. I think that's true, but so does the United States. And we know from what Snowden has revealed that there's been vast violations of individuals' rights because the NSA has had such unfettered power. I mean, they're not only spying on the terrorists, they're spying, we know concretely from the Snowden documents, they're spying on Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, the United Nations, they're spying on journalists, they're going in and taking journalist records. If you look at the um, the compliance records of NSA analysts, they're using the powers they have to spy on their ex-girlfriends mm. and their current girlfriends who are cheating on them. Now, I just think that when you, when you give any government body powers that aren't scrutinised, they're going to misuse them. And I don't think... And the think point you raised there is really government bodies are still made of individual, individual humans, humans with yeah. their frailties and weaknesses and temptations. Exactly. And I think also, I mean, I think um, Carrie's point was that it's not part of a state policy at currently to use surveillance information to persecute particular groups. I don't agree with that generally, actually, because if you look at, you know, the new legislation around whistleblowers and journalists, it's it's clear that the government is intent on persecuting particular groups. But even then... Well, I, we, I'm tempted to say that the Attorney-General can declare any group he likes to be a terrorist well, organisation. Well, that, that's exactly right. And that, that's the thing. If you, if you adopt broad laws, 
you have no control over, over whom the future governments will consider to fall within those laws and who will fall afoul of a future government and who will come within their definition of terrorists. I mean, I'm from Queensland and we saw recently the bikey laws there, bikey organisations being, you know, cast as, as terrorist groups. I think that, that, you know, any law that allows for that level of interpretation is inevitably going to end in, in misuse, I think. That's one of the things I think is really good about tonight. And when we get to your questions, I encourage you to really grill Carly about the law broadly because one of the problems that we have in the debate, I think, is that a lot of people are arguing from the position of what they imagine the law to be Mm. or what they hope the law to be or what they fear the law to be rather than what it is, what it's likely to be and how the law is interpreted. I think an interesting Mm. example of that is... The first tranche, as our Attorney General says of legislation, um, included, had to be amended to include the fact, no, ASIO can't do torture. Now, he argued that even though, like, I know we're excusing them from minor crimes under these special intelligence operations, which is like, you know, a break and enter or a property damage or whatever, people say, oh, that means they can torture and kill people. It's like, No, no. A, you didn't read it. It said minor crimes and certainly nothing that would cause death, injury or a sexual crime. But B, torture is separately illegal in Mm. so many ways Mm. in the Australian context. But all right. Can I say something quickly on that, though? I think that Australians sometimes inflate the in their minds how many legal protections we do have, actually. Um, that Steve Kinane in that interview just then said to me, um, you know, that some uh, this UN expert said that this would be a violation of international law. Can't we challenge it if it's a violation of international law then? Wouldn't that, like, wouldn't we have a... We are signatory to the UN Convention yeah, but on it doesn't, Human I mean, Rights. We don't have a Human Rights Act here and it doesn't mean anything in Australian law. It, it really doesn't. I mean, but it's, it's on, a very you... difficult... If, if, if Australia signed up to UN Treaty, even though we may not necessarily have black letter law enacting all yeah. that, does not the High Court say, hey, guys, you did sign up to this? They'll say that you have to interpret existing law in the spirit of the, your international commitments or something along those oh, lines. But then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a very don't. strong <laughs> argument for why we need a Human Rights Act here in Australia. I mean, the, in the UK, it's like, it's super criticised, the Human Rights Act. And if the Tories get in, it's highly likely they'll re- repeal the, the Human Rights Act. But I think that it, there's very strong reasons. Well, the argument, one of the strongest people arguing against things like a Human Rights Act or a Bill mm. of Rights mm. are existing establishment Christian churches saying it will somehow destroy Christianity. I don't quite know how their argument works, but they are the, the, the strongest mm. opponent. I suppose because it means they have to have equal footing with everyone else, that they, they, they as one religion, don't get a specific yeah. special deal or whatever, but that's, that's sort of getting a bit off the topic, yeah. I suppose. I, I don't know there. what that justification is, but I do know that one of the earliest proponents of fundamental human rights was um, St Thomas Aquinas, and it's, uh, it's in, yes. inherently... Yeah, well, it's inherently a, a dis- discourse that is associated with Christian values, I think, in, in a good way. So. In, indeed, it's... Oh, that's another whole can of yeah, worms, perhaps. which we'll leave <laughs> to another day. I don't think we're going to solve no. religion tonight. No, no, no. Back to Europe briefly. Mm. The European Data, Protect, uh, Data Retention Directive... Yeah. The Data Protection Directive is yeah. another thing, and that's right. kind of a good thing right. in Europe. Right. Um, 
That fueled in, though, as I said, I mentioned the Convention on Cybercrime, the Council yeah. of Europe, which is still basically Europe. Yeah. A few years ago, uh, the Quintet Nations. Now, who here has heard of the Quintet Nations? Okay. Better explain quickly. Heard of the Five Eyes, right? The intelligence sharing of US, UK, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, kind of in that order of picking. Yeah. yeah. Okay. The Quintet Nations are the same nations, but it's an annual meeting of their attorneys general to discuss matters of mutual interest. And it was three years ago they adopted... They not only adopted the Council of Europe Convention on Cybercrime as this will be ours and our model, and it was some legislation uh, two years ago that went through in Australia that made Australia compliant with that, the Quintet Nations have also said that they will promulgate, promulgate this as the model that everyone else in the world should adopt. And data retention mm. is at the core of that. One of the requirements to be in the Convention is that you must enact data retention laws in your countries. Right. Australia has already done so. I think it would be fair to say that what Australia has implemented so far is already one of the most um, enthusiastic. Right. Adopters of right. these provisions. Yeah, I mean, I have. I mean, I don't know much about the Cybercrime Convention. I haven't followed it closely, other than in it's, the developing. It's, it's not a big right. document. It's yeah. a nice. Right. It's yeah. a nice to have. But it's a very. <laughs> we work a bit, quite a bit, in, on privacy and data protection in the developing mm. in developing countries, mm. and it's a very persuasive um, idea in those countries because there's a lot of pressure put on places like the Philippines, for example. Mm. By you, you want yeah. the Australian Federal Police to come and exactly. help you sort out your corruption, then exactly. you better adopt the cybercrime adopt the cybercrime exactly. convention. Yeah. And now we'll come in and sort out your corrupt call centres. Right, right, yeah. exactly. And if you want Australian businesses to outsource their data to you, which is business process outsourcing, obviously a big uh, source of income for countries like the Philippines, Bangladesh, India. And those increasingly are getting Africa, pressure. Kenya, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tanzania. Yeah, absolutely. They're getting pressure to adopt these types of laws that way. That, uh, I mean, Attorney General George Brandis did say that the, the West is moving towards data retention. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I By that, that he meant right, the five Anglosphere nations. Yes. Well, the UK certainly, after the European Court made its ruling in April, the UK brought through le uh, emergency legislation reenacting the same laws that the European Court had just declared invalid. Um, and so the UK is, doesn't give a shit about what Europe the European Court has to say. Uh, Australia also obviously doesn't give a shit. The US, I think, I actually have a lot more faith in. There's been a much more rigorous um, process of interrogating the activities of the intelligence agencies, and there seems to be well, the Americans some... have a tradition of that. I think so. Of. I think, well, they like to tout themselves. Once as, a generation, yeah, you know, yeah. there's a wave yeah. of... Yeah, kind of uh, transparency, accountability. Yeah. And I think, to, to their credit, I mean, Obama has been... Out of all the five vice countries, they've been the... Well, perhaps New Zealand. New Zealand were quite sweet and said, like, kind of admitted, like, one or two things that they did. But, you know, the, Obama's been quite, like, open and, you know, and at least acknowledging the veracity of some of the documents, which the UK hasn't done at all. And, um, you know, in, in establishing this review board, etc. So I think that... Um, I don't think that the US is going to go the way of the UK and Australia. And interestingly, I, I do a lot of work with the... Um, like, lobbying at the UN to try and get the, them to adopt better laws, human rights laws around privacy. And 
the US is in a completely different camp from the UK and Australia, even physically, like the UK and Australia sit together and they're, and the New Zealanders are there and they're kind of like lobbying together. And the US is like actually kind of out on their own, trying to forge um, ties with the Europeans, trying to make Germany be like, like them again after Angela Merkel got spied on. Um, well, I mean, so, yes, Europe and with Germany at the lead has essentially told the US, we'll go and shovel with your crowd, yeah. crowd, cloud providers, you know, right, yeah. up, right up your Nimbus. Yeah. And, and we'll build our own. Yeah, I mean, that's a very strong debate in Europe at the moment is should there be a European cloud? Should we localise all data? And it has, I mean, you see, you go to Brussels and you see Google and Facebook and, and all of those companies spending huge amounts of money lobbying European governments to not establish a European cloud because the financial implications for them of that is, are really quite grave. They they couch those arguments in, in more principled terms. They say, if you establish a European cloud, Russia will establish a Russian cloud, etc. <laughs> blame um, the Russians, yeah. blame the or, Chinese. Or blame Russia, blame China Iran. and Iran always yeah. as like the three trump cards that they try and bring out at every opportunity. That does raise a point. I, I want to come to the quick summary of what we have really learned from Snowden as opposed to some of the, the hype in a second. But Russia and China are doing this too. I mean, this is not some magic, oh my God, the English-speaking nations are suddenly turning evil. This is all part of the three great power blocks that have existed for the past 70 years, continuing what they've done for the past 70 years. And I I guess I detect a certain geekiness level in, in the audience, so I know that some at least will be familiar that these... Uh, agencies in the West grew out of the World War II signals intelligence agencies right. and cracking the codes one World War II for us guys right. kind of thing. Right. But that broad historical spectrum, what are your thoughts on that? Because anyone who says we don't, we, we can't have any kind of surveillance and secrecy and law mm. enforcement and national, I mean, that, that's cloud cuckoo land. Right. You know, we, yeah. we need something. We need yeah. to defend ourselves in a rich and complex and potentially violent world. Yeah. At the other end of the spectrum, we don't, probably don't wish to be the Stasi. Yeah. I'm willing to hear arguments in favour of it, <laughs> but... I think, where, so I think where, start where is that by, balance I think navigated should, yeah. over, over time? I think to understand it, we should start by separating out law enforcement and crime from intelligence, foreign intelligence, right? Yeah. So, yes, we accept surveillance as part of a law enforcement. It's a relatively well-regulated technique used by law enforcement. There's certainly overreach, there's certainly evil things done, but let's put that but in a basket. The short answer is, yeah. get a warrant, there are murderers Exa- and rapists Exactly, get a warrant, yeah. and that's fine. Yeah. Intelligence gathering, as we, as we now know it exists grew out of a tradition that was fundamentally about war, right? I mean, intelligence bodies, signals intelligence agencies were set up to understand the potential actions of an enemy during, in the, in the, Ooh, as how far back as the do we 20s, go? maybe? I'm Since not sure. Sir Francis Walsingham bought his first letter opener from for Queen Elizabeth I. There you I go. Mean, I wasn't going to go back that far. That far. Okay. <laughs> um, so, but in any event, when, when, you know, up until Caesar, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. shaving the head of yeah. messenger boys, you right. know, codes tattooed right. on their head. Well, know. sorry, codes certainly, yeah. and code breaking but goes signals back. Signals intelligence, yeah, as centuries. long as we've had signals, modern day sig- communication signals intelligence throughout yeah. the, the 20th century. Let's but we got to the end of the Cold War, yeah. and we had all these SIGINT agencies who no longer had this existential threat. You know, billions and billions of dollars spent right. to win the Cold War. Right. Exactly, and so then end of we the won, Cold War. Money went, yeah. money well spent. Right, <laughs> whatever. You can argue about the details, but we won. Right, 
And then you have the end of the Cold War and you have these signals intelligence bodies which are by their very nature self-sustaining institutions that want to you know, maintain their own life, obviously. And I'm, you I'm also a middle-level have... manager. I have 300 staff. Right. I want exactly. to maintain my budget because I've got a mortgage to pay. Of course, exactly. And then you also have the other problem where the enemy is within now rather than the enemy is... Okay, we could say well, the, enemy the enemy was always, was always within. within. Yeah, it was reds under the bed. Yeah, but, yeah. but in any event, you know... If terrorists, if we're in a war on terror and the terrorists are everywhere, how do we uh, conduct surveillance of a foreign foreign intelligence when the communications uh, uh, are tied up with our own? So that's how we end up with a situation in which all communications are part of foreign intelligence. And, and that kind of happened because I will say those international agencies, the NSA, GCHQ in Britain, uh, DSD, now ASD in Australia, etc., were looking outwards right. because the, in, the, the insider threat was handled by the FBI, the right. US, MI5 yeah. in and the that's UK, not necessarily, ASIO right. here. They, they, there that's was a very right. clear which, which separation. Still, which, so there is, still is ostensibly a clear separation in that they will all say they're still doing foreign intelligence. The two things that have changed is that one, communications, the, the way we communicate has changed. So lots of our communications incidentally become foreign communications because we 70% use of all communications traffic goes through Virginia. There you go. Yeah, so we all use foreign service providers and so our communications become foreign intelligence. But secondly, we have now a situation in which each of those countries only collects on foreigners, but then they share everything mm. all the time. So the US is only spying on the rest of the world, but then they're sharing that data with the Australian government. The Australian government's spying on the Americans and sharing that data with the American government. And that's happening in this really kind of um, very highly cohesive um, and, and complete manner. Which does bring us directly to Edward Snowden's uh, right. revelations. Now, first up, We've seen a lot of PowerPoint slides. How much of that do we know for sure is programs that are actually up and operational as opposed to wishful thinking, as opposed to some geeks down in room 47 go, hey, boss, I've got a great plan. Can we get this approved? Yeah, I think that's a really good, interesting question that I haven't heard asked very much. I mean... I mean, anyone who's ever made a PowerPoint presentation knows that you're not, like, checking it for accuracy all the time. And secondly, lots of these were presentations presented at SIGINT conferences with Five Eyes agencies where the agencies were trying to boast about their achievements. So there's potentially certainly a certain amount of over, you know, overstating things. But there are numerous slides in which, for example, the quantum suite of tools mm. where there's a grid which says this is operational, this isn't, this mm. is aspirational, etc. So I think and it's, it's got a date on it. Right, yeah. exactly. So I think it's fair to say that um, things like PRISM, Tempora, um, Mastering the Internet, um, Optic Nerve, you know, Squeaky Dolphin, X-Key Score. Can we, can we do a, your top five sentence on each the ones we should worry about? There, there you go. There's a question for um, you. I oh, like, you just named them. I'll, just, I'll go top five favourite code names. Um, <laughs> I like uh, the Smurf ones. Smurf. Yeah, so Nosy Smurf. Um, Nosy Smurf is gorgeous. Nosy Smurf is where you can hack into a use, uh, user's device and turn on the mobile phone so that... Uh, sorry, sorry, turn on the um, microphone so you can hear what they're saying. Um, I can't remember the other Smurfs, but they were like video, turning on the video. Uh, and, I guess, and I guess part of the shocking nature of what Snowden revealed was not that a specific phone could be in certain right. circumstances hacked into and the mic turned on because we've, we've kind of known that that is the case. The functionality right, is built right. into the phone, right? It's, yeah. it's something, they're the drug dealers, you can be the drug dealer right now, I want to listen to your phone, I'll get your phone number and listen to you. 
what was shocking about the Snowden one is that anyone just sitting at their workstation could go, what's the phone number? Yeah, that one, punch, listen. Yeah. The, I th- yeah, the, the automated industrial, automated industrial and, scale yeah, of it. Industrial scale, exactly. And the banality of yeah. it, yes. Um, I think, yeah, if and I can throw the, mine, well, that, that is one of the shocks of it, that yeah. at one level... Well, of course the NSA is tapping all the world's communications. That's kind of what their job is. But the other level is, oh, you're doing it that well. Mm. Oh, well well done. And it's that I easy think. for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Some of the technical detail was quite, you know, prosaic. Like, mm. like, 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 mm. like, high school kids could do the same sort of thing. These guys just made an engineering project and start to stick it with the post Well, I think Bruce Schneier, the security guru, said that in, in one of his blog posts. And if you're not reading Bruce Schneier's work, please do so. Who has not heard of Bruce Schneier? Don't be embarrassed. Okay, Bruce Schneier wrote the textbook on cryptography. No, I mean literally. And then applied cryptography, it's called. It, he, his, his, um, his CV essentially says, worked for the US Department of Defense in a 15-year period. Now he out, is out talking about such things. He is actually... Because he knows so much about this field, he's actually joined the board of EFF, the EFA's equivalent organisation in the US, because he has said straight up what the US and the NSA is doing is illegal and unconstitutional and he's fighting against it. And and he kind of knows. But he did say in one of his blog posts, the reassuring thing about everything we're learning about the NSA so far is that there isn't any magic in this. Hmm. We're not, as you said, we're not seeing anything that a bunch of geeks sitting around a table for a few days or weeks couldn't sketch out. It's just that all those projects mm. got green-lighted, mm. green-lit, mm. and... And are done on industrial and dollars, scale. And done on industrial yeah. scale. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, the technologies, a lot of the technologies, we, we had been working previously on the private surveillance technology industry, which is a group of companies that sell these technologies to repressive re- regimes like Egypt and Libya and Bahrain. And so we could, we could, we knew these technologies existed already, but we'd seen the US and the UK and others absolutely lambast those companies and say, or lambast those governments that use them, and say, you know, look how bad Egypt is. They're doing mass surveillance. And and so what I think was really shocking about Snowden was not that this was a capability that existed. We knew that, but that it was being done by these these governments on such a scale. Um, so coming back to that sense of that historical balance. When it's the case of if I want to tap... I'm sorry, I'm picking on you, but I'm going to tap your phone again <laughs> for reasons... You're just in my sight Heidi, line, I think. I think her name's Heidi. Heidi? Yes. Heidi? Heidi? Yes. I've just dropped this down. No, that's data, not metadata. But um, <laughs> You should object to using your name uh, on the grounds of privacy. <laughs> yes, please do. Yeah, I have to object when I have someone like Right, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you've got a pretty good defender here. I'll grant you that. Okay. If the process of me listening to that woman's phone, Heidi's phone, requires me to drill a hole in the wall, run a cable, you know, stick fibre optic cameras in her house, spend days watching her to make sure she's not home while I do that, I will think twice before going to that effort. Because yeah. if nothing else, I've got to tell my boss why I've just spent $20,000. Yeah. When I go, Heidi, press record... All that vanishes, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, I think that's... The sense of yeah. stop and think of whether you want to do this. The barriers to surveillance are much lower than they've yeah, ever been before. Sorry? It goes further than that. 
please, please explain. Well, it's not, you, you're, you're implying the intent before the action. It's, I now discover that Hardy has become a person of interest. What did she say last year? Ah, mm. uh, yes. That's the point. If yeah. it was act, suspicion, act, surveil, yeah. that would be far more defensible. And Heidi can become a person of interest, as the phase goes, simply because her phone number turns up in the phone records of someone. Right. Well, she calls the guy three times before he goes on a suicide. Yes, because she worked at the bakery that sold his family bread. But that, you know, all... But in fact, she calls that you, we know that the NSA is doing three hops, right? So it's not just she called him, but she called someone who called someone who called someone who called him. I mean, and when you do the maths, which I'm sure many well, people can do better than I, that's... One of the frightening things is I phoned my bank. Who else phoned my bank right. this week, let alone for the last two years? Right. Well, that's four million people in Australia. Right. It, like three... Yeah, yeah that's exactly. one hop. Exactly. So... That was the kind of legal uh, framework in which it operated. I think Obama has made them pull back to two now. That's right, yeah. So part of, but, but still, big deal. Yeah, yeah. Um, I phoned Telstra today. Who else phoned Telstra today right. kind of thing? Right. I'm certainly not going to throw in the if you've got nothing to hide, you've got nothing to fear, because there's a, a wonderful paper by someone at Columbia Law School, I think, who demolishes that whole thing in about half a dozen pages. I'm trying to remember the reference now. So I'll, uh, mm. I've got some homework. But Cardinal Richelieu said, and I, I must paraphrase here because he said it in French and there's lots of different translations, but he said, give me six lines penned by the most right. honest man in the kingdom and in them I will find a way to hang him. So instead of six lines, you've got six terabytes right. about someone. Right. It makes it a bit easy. These are the proportionality arguments. But at the same time, and, and I'm going to give it, a, this is a law enforcement example. Hmm. Again, I've, I've had conversations with uh, senior people in the Australian Federal Police, both on and off record as part of my work. And when the numbers started getting profiles, particularly Senator Scott Ludlam is picking up the annual reports on the Telecommunications Intercept Act and saying, what do you mean there was half a million requests for telephone metadata without a warrant in Australia this year? Now, alright, we've got the whole, and some were from the RSPCA and some were Wyndham Council and some was the Victorian Taxi Cab Licensing Authority and whatever, and they were chasing their own thing, and I won't get into that argument today because this is a different thing. But he said, in the case of a murder, if we are investigating a murder, first day we will probably pull four or five hundred people's telephone records. Everybody in the, in the victim's life. And within 24 hours, we will have removed 99% of those people from further interest. What I also know is in the law enforcement environment under the uh, various surveillance devices acts in each state of Australia, that telephone metadata is only accessible to that team of detectives investigating that case. If any other police officer touches it, they are committing a crime. And once the crime investigation has either proceeded to prosecution and guilty and the appeal period expired or it is dropped that data must be destroyed. That's in the law enforcement context. Mm. What do we have in the national security context? 
I can't speak to the legal framework, but I Australia's detail, is but I understand out, yes. that the intelligence services um, can do whatever they want most of the mm. time. There are rules to protect Australians in the Intelligence Services Act, which means that if you're an Australian citizen resident or if you're an Australian citizen living overseas and have been returned recently or something, you're, you have there's a higher kind of sta- standard for when they can conduct surveillance of, of you. Um, but as I said earlier, that doesn't actually um, solve the fundamental problem that if they're, even if they're only collecting all foreigners' communications, they are in any event sharing it with the US who's sharing their communications back with us. So I think that these kind of... The, any, any provisions that protect Australians in the Intelligence Services Act are obsolete generally. My understanding is that the Intelligence Services Act, uh, Intelligence Services have pretty much free reign to access and use metadata however they like. And in fact, the Telecommunications um, Reporting Act doesn't include numbers for intelligence no, services no, at all. No, we have no so idea. We, we know that the police have accessed 500,000 times, or I think it was 320 last year, perhaps. Uh, it's, it's grown... Uh, John's got the exact yeah, numbers? 330,000. By law enforcement. It's, 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 no, it's, by everyone. Okay. Except, except intelligence. Yeah. Um, I've been told by some people who would know that ASIO's numbers are probably lower than the Okay. Well, that would make sense simply because they're doing fewer but more complex things. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a bit, in the UK anyway, there's uncertainty about whether one request pertains to one person or whether one request could pertain to 10,000 people, yeah, for yeah. example. Yeah, I mean, we have the same answer. Yeah. Right. Right. I, I can't see any reason why publishing statistics about ASIO's access in any way. Right. What are statistics Right. Well, if I can put the devil's advocate position, if I know that the number of names that have gone into ASIO's metadata pool is 500 as opposed to 50,000, then I know that it's probably not Abdul the junior clerk at a suburban mosque, whereas if it is 50,000... Hmm. then it probably is, if you see what I mean. That You, you get a sense of the scale I can give some operations. numbers from the Snowden documents which said that mm. um, Tempora, which is the UK interception of all metadata and content um, in and out of the UK and storing that for 30 days for metadata and three days for content. Um, the UK applies 41,000 selectors to that data, so that's either names, accounts particular words and the NSA applies another 30,000 selectors to that um, data so basically doing 70,000 searches every day of uh, communications going in and out of the United Kingdom. I mean that that covers a lot of territory if we assume that a certain proportion are names and some are obviously going to be keywords if I talk about anthrax. Right. You know, so it, there's going to be a selector which tells me, yes, you're talking about the fatal disease as opposed to the band. Right. And they go, no, we, we don't wish to scoop up all the music fans in this. Right. So right. there'll be a selector to kind of exclude them if they start mentioning the, their yeah. songs or something. Yeah. Um, that, could, that still covers quite a bit of territory. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think that it's... There, there are restrictions, they say, but one of, part of the problem is that we, again, there's particular rules that they say exist went to what they can and cannot apply. So they would say it has to be a name or an IP address or a phone number that we apply to this data. But they, there's no publicly available laws or mm. rules to show that they are actually abiding by that. And in fact, they call it below the waterline um, policies, meaning they're policies that we have that you can't see, but trust us, we're doing the right thing, mm. basically. But... Uh... 
at least in the Anglosphere countries, there is a tradition of trying to get this right. I, I'm trying to... I find it always difficult to phrase that. I'll come to you in a moment. But, you know, it, there is a... I mean, I, I put up a name here before. James Bamford is an American journalist who has been writing about uh, the NSA in particular and, to a lesser extent, the CIA and others for many years. His key book, The Puzzle Palace, covers the history of the NSA up to about the mid-1980s and then there are subsequent books. Very well-connected guy. He talks about being in an NSA room full of analysts and there's like a banner at the end of the room reminding them that if they stumble across an American in their data, they had better redact them down to American 1 and American 2, etc. before that data goes anywhere. We saw in the Snowden documents a procedure which was if you are an analyst and suddenly realise you are looking at an American's data, this is the procedure for notifying your supervisor and making sure that data gets extracted from mm. whatever you're working on. Mm. And, and presumably some process that if you follow, you are not going to be penalised because it was an oopsie rather than spying on your ex-girlfriend kind right. of thing. Right. How much do we know about how well those traditions have been maintained? I don't know. I mean, we can't know. We can't know because we have no ability to scrutinise them. I would just say, even if they are maintained, even if that is true, that the government is intercepting all communications but only looking at foreigners, we still have a situation in which they're intercepting our communications in the first place because you can't tell if they're foreigners or not mm. until you until you open them. This is This is one of the... The questions that's going to come up, I'm sure, in the metadata legislation in Australia, and this is a current case, I think, in the US, one of the EFF's cases, mm. at which point is the collection mm. considered to have happened? Yeah. If the SIGINT agency has a magic box in the telco that is recording all the data, yeah. is that an act of collection? Or is it only collection when the SIGINT agency runs the database query and pulls out what they're interested in. Now, the NSA is maintaining that, no, no, that's, that's just a database. We're not collecting mm, it mm. until we look at it. Mm. It's a, did the tree in the forest fall? If yeah, no one, no you know. it, yeah. But, but at the same time, the EFF is arguing, well, no, no, the collecting is happening there. I think that, that, I mean, the NSA is trying to completely change the discourse by choosing the words it uses. I think that collection implies that you're taking something. If we talk about interference or intrusion with communications, it's clear that that can be done by a computer at the very moment that the packet is interrogated mm -hmm. by the computer. Um, I think that that is an argument that will not withstand scrutiny, ultimately. The European Court has said time and time again, it's when you get the data. It doesn't matter if a person looks at it. It doesn't matter if they ever did anything with it. it even if all you did is put it in a database, a computer puts it in a database, that is where the violation of privacy occurs. And I, I think that... It's quite clear on US law. I don't think that argument's going to withstand proper scrutiny in the long term. That's a we shall see, though, isn't it? Well, I mean, it is. Gotta... It is. I mean, it's a very dangerous thing that the US is trying to get at there, which is, and the UK as well, they, they talk about sentient interference or sentient um, interception. So it's only if someone sees it, looks at it, or listens to it, that it becomes a, an act of surveillance. If a computer does those things, then it's not surveillance and I think that's well, a very, Google, very Google, dangerous Google thing. has used this same argument to say that we are not invading your privacy by data mining your email right. to target advertising right. because no humans are looking at that. Right, right. Well, that also tell you that you're 
but they also tell you they do it, correct? Yeah. Uh, something it's on our list and this is a perfect time to bring it up the right to be forgotten now that phrase has been used to label what's happening in Europe yes is it an accurate phrase for starters yeah I think that it's it's a very loaded term it, the, mm. d the debate around whether there should be a right to be forgotten generally has been part of this European data protection discourse for years now what the what the court decided earlier this year is much narrower than a right to be forgotten. All it, they said basically was that you have a right to request that a particular link is not indexed in a set of search results when your name is searched. Mm. So there was lots of caveats put on that. It is not you have the right to remove information from the internet. It's not the right the right that that link will be forever gone from Google. That it's not you're not able to find it from Google. You can still find it. You just still can't find you can't find it when you search someone's exact name, basically. So, so I, I search Carly Neist and the fact that that I, I cheated on a test at university. Hmm. If I cheated on a test at university and uh, BBC wrote an article about me. 2014 comes along. I'm really upset that when you type in Carly Neist, the first article is BBC article about me cheating on a test. I write to Google. I say, please remove that because link. Because it was 15 years ago. Because it's 15 years ago, ago and it's not relevant yeah. anymore. They make a consideration. They make a balance between public interest and, and privacy. Admittedly, it's in the hand of, hands of Google, so we're all very concerned about that as a thing. So, so how are they going to balance that? Because that's, a, that's actually mm. an apt example. Because if you are a, a lawyer, which is a profession that depends on yeah. honesty, etc. Yeah. There's the argument that, hang on, the fact that you cheated is something that right. really does last, yeah, yeah, yeah. as opposed to you run a bakery, right. you know, you, you cheated on your yeah. driving test. I mean, like, certainly, really? I, don't, I don't know what the answer to that is. Yeah. Google's doing consultations oh. now internationally to try and get p public input into what factors they should consider when considering the public interest. But it's a very fraught balancing act to be made. Mm. But I think that it's something that we should strive to try and fix somehow. I do think that people should have the right to have certain links removed from certain search results in certain circumstances. What all of the qualifiers are there, I think, is going to be part of a long discussion. But I think We're that only really at the beginning of this debate, aren't we? Right, exactly. First, yeah. And there's been a lot of hyperbole out there. There's been a lot of alarmism saying that this is the end of free expression on the internet, etc. And I don't <laughs> think that that's a fair kind of response. But you know, I think time will tell um, how we go with that. Well, I'm, I'm going to come back to Kerry Chikorovsky's question then, because Sorry. that hyperbole yes. surely is inherent of in the whole. If we have data retention, we're becoming the Stasi. That you wrote. Mm. Today, I think mm. it was, yes. Um, did you want to answer that question on my behalf? I, I was just going to say, I, I, don't think, I, I don't think Carly actually said we would become the Stasi. <laughs> we would be creating files like the Stasi files. So I would make that. And I, I, what I was trying to say is that... Um, the woman can defend herself quite clearly. No, no, no. Thank you, John. Um, <laughs> I think widespread blanket surveillance mm. is not compatible with democratic principles. And I think that we see a, a government like the Stasi, which was admittedly an undemocratic or, or quite clearly an undemocratic um, country. Yeah, I mean, yeah, but, East Germany but, had problems before we got yeah, of to course. that. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But, I mean, what is more concerning here is the kind of... I think it's it's almost like the as someone said before the banal nature of of mm. like you know yeah. this type of evil that's perpetrated under the guise of like we're doing the best thing for Australia's national security and we're a democratic country and we care about our citizens and I I think that 
for, for Kerry to respond like that, I think is a bit um, naive in a way because it, I think there's a slippery slope. I think power corrupts. I mean, these are not new ideas. We've seen it happen time and time again. And I, I think that this is one you know, area in which we should be careful. So, so, question then. Oh, yep. Interesting. You don't know what future mm. governments are going to do with them. It's the same problem with the. Mm. It's a great point. I'll, I'll, yeah. if, I, if I can amplify that, a book by Black, is it Edwin or Irvin Black? But it's called IBM and the Holocaust. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, it explains essentially that the data was connected in the Netherlands for the census, the mm. same way we do in our own census mm. to find out the proportions of different religions so we get an idea of who should get government funding for what or whether we should have what proportion of religious education in schools or a whole lot of really good reasons. Mm. IBM's involvement <coughs> is they, saw, they, they ran the Dutch census on their punch card machines as they did throughout there. What's particularly interesting about uh, Mr Black's book is it explains how, A, uh, Mr Thomas, the head of IBM, was such a friend of Hitler, he got a medal from him and much admired the Nazis in Germany. And also, when they saw that Europe was happening and the US might go to war in Europe, they wished to preserve their revenue, so they reincorporated all of the European countries' branches of IBM under IBM Switzerland and separated it from the US organisation so they could still continue running their punch card operations through the war. Mm. And the whole Holocaust connection is, well, how do you organise this logistical procedure is you need punch cards, and IBM did not sell punch card machines, they only leased them, and they came with the operator who encoded the database searches and ran the machines. So there was no... They cannot say that they did not know Mm. that it happened. Now, that... Wow, I've really Godwined it there. (laughs) (laughs) That is about as Godwin as you can get. But it does show how data collected for one purpose can be used in another. In a non-Godwin example, um, membership of a motorcycle club in Australia a decade ago was a perfectly innocuous thing, and now in several states it tags you out for quite specific treatment in the eyes of the law, he says, as neutrally as possible. So these kinds of things can change over a very short period. That's a good point. John. Can I jump in there? This is one thing that I think needs to be um, have some light shot on. There's a very interesting note here in the industry consultation paper from the Attorney General's Department, which relates to... This is the secret one which you've got copies of there. Yes. Very happy to share it. Yeah. Um, in fact, we all are. Um, I thought that... Is that the one that was Fairfax to the other week, or is this the newer uh, I one? Think it, I think the Australian got a copy. Um, quite frankly, it doesn't even have a copyright statement on it, let alone... It certainly doesn't say confidential, so... Ah, oh, cool. Um, it, it, one, of the, one of the data points that um, the department is seeking is upload and upload volumes and or download volumes. Mm. Um, now, talking about sort of you know data potentially being used for other purposes, um, I <coughs> I can't imagine any possible use of that information for anything other than tackling copyright infringement. Okay, I can give an example. Uh, what I'm investigating is a jihadi website. I know that on a particular day, a video of a beheading in suburban Bankstown was uploaded to that server 
from a certain IP address. If I want to ping the person, I can rule someone out if they were on an IP address that did not upload 20 megabytes as opposed to one megabyte, I know they weren't the one who did it. But presumably anyone who visits a jihadi website is... Already being monitored. Yes. Absolutely. By From the other end. Whether or not they uploaded a video, they're... they're yeah. The, the whole... The, yeah. The, 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 sense, the sense that... that the scenarios which are being discussed uh, from uh, the intel agencies about, no, we, 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 we won't get your browsing history from the internet service, your internet service provider, because, well, they don't log it anyway, and we're not seeking for them to log it. What they're saying is, whoever wrote this post or whoever delivered this email or whoever sent this SMS at that end, we know what the IP address was that that came from. So now we want to go back to the telco and say, at this specific date and time, who was that? Supplementary. Um, that was a good answer. Thank you. Um, I appreciate that. But one of the, I think one of the points that people need to understand is that once this information is there and is collected, it is subpoenable by potentially anyone. So the copyright trolls out there will will come after it and will use it as part of their um, their program to you know. Uh, essentially monetise copyright infringement issues? Well, I mean, from their point of view, if an internet service provider has a big fat database of who's uploaded what when in quantity, then it would be illegal for them not to hand it over when subpoenaed to support some other legal matter. Surely they have evidence relating to a criminal offence, if we're talking a criminalised level of infringement as opposed to personal... I didn't inhale kind of copyright infringement. <laughs> don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> um, we've got a few minutes left. Uh, I'm sorry. Um, you guys talk a lot about the maybe we're more comfortable with law enforcement because they have warrants, whereas uh, we don't have very good intelligence oversight at the moment. But I've heard that there's been a bit of flow of information between the two, mm. perhaps in this case, the intelligence services were then informing law enforcement mm. agencies about. Yeah, I mean, I don't know much more about it than that, I have to say, but I know that you're right that um, that the NSA, with its lower level, like lower threshold upon which it, it has to reach to get the intelligence in the first place, is obtaining it and then handing it over to the FBI. But I don't, I mean, certainly I think that that's a really worrying circumvention of the necessary safeguards that are there in the first place. Um, but I think the problem is, is yeah, is deeply ingrained that the, that the intelligence services can do that so easily and, and then share. But I, yeah, I agree. It's a, it's We're fine. seeing, if I can throw a kind of a, a field opinion into that, we're seeing a, a convergence of several threads. We're seeing things called intelligence fusion centres being set up where the intelligence services and law enforcement agencies at different levels are sharing their intelligence on certain matters. We're also seeing a certain nebulous kind of language when it says, under what circumstances can intelligence be shared? And you'll hear, well, it's about the Nazi pedos, it's about the terrorists, and it's about the pedophiles, and it's about the international drug dealing. But then when you start looking at the language, you see language creeping into, or any serious indictable offence. And there's a kind of phrase that comes in a lot uh, in the law enforcement uh, surveillance device acts, which talks about, well, you can't get a surveillance device warrant except for 
a serious indictable offence, which in Australia is something that would get you more than two years in jail or involves violence or whatever it might be. So, guys, you know, he, it, it, it was a punch-up at the pub. No, you're not getting a goddamn surveillance warrant to investigate that because at most it, it's an affray and, and six months. Um, I don't know the exact penalties for affray, but you get the, the point. But we constantly see this this shifting of that and, and always the rhetoric is it's about fighting terrorism, it's about national security, it's about returning jihadis, it's about these guys but then when you actually read the law that applies or the policy that says under what circumstances can an intel agency hand a few sheets of redacted paper to the local police mm. it's always much fuzzier language and it and always seems to slope down rather than up mm. I think that's right mm. We're almost out of time. One more question, if anyone has one. Sir, at the back. Just the final thing, I guess, is all this information is centralised to some level, regardless of who has legal jurisdiction to use it, hmm. uh, with or without our consent. Surely, not having it in one place is easily accessible yeah. by someone else. So it's like, I don't know about what the legislation is proposing. Nobody does. Well, that. we haven't we haven't seen it yet. The, we've we've seen discussion papers, but yes, the actual legislation. It's one of those things, yes, that if there's one big fat repository, we've got one big fat skilled security team with bigger numbers. Hopefully, you can split it up and be sensible. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but. If the information is kept by ISPs themselves, then what about those husband and wife ISPs serving a community of 500 people that, you know, have done so because they bought a few racks of DSL equipment cheap when someone upgraded to the next gear? And they're, they're already hacked from... From I was about to use an Australian phrase not appropriate for public, uh, but yeah. Uh, and also, are there ways around? Um, when 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 we have people like Dmitry Alperovitch, who was uh, a chief technical officer for McAfee at one point, and now runs uh, a kind of. Uh, a, a small boutique information security firm that specialises in what is euphemistically called active defence, um, saying that there are only two types of organisations, those that know they've been hacked and those that don't yet know they've been hacked. Um, I'm inclined to agree with him. I mean, you, you, you talk to information security specialists, yeah, everyone gets hacked. It's a matter of by whom, for how long, and what did they get before you noticed them in the same way that of course your body just fought off a virus. It fought off 57 different kind of viruses in the time we've been sitting here in this room. The question is how far did it get in? How much damage did it cause? Oh, your immune system's working fine. Excellent. You live another healthy day today, sir. Um, just a point on the centralisation The big negative is then if they do get hacked, it's a single point of failure mm. and they have unlimited access to all of the data at once. I mean, using the yep. body example, just because one organ fails doesn't mean you immediately die. 
Well, it depends which organ, but yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but the point is that, yeah, yeah, yeah. The spleen or something, that's not... Yeah, I mean, the, 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 point, the point is right, and I suppose one of my secret hopes is maybe that, that politicians will join the dots in their head between massive database of everyone's telephone and communications metadata and the independent commission against corruption hearings that they're watching in the media at the moment mm. and and remember that they're in there as well uh one more that one more sir do you feel like the sort of battle against government data retention is something that can be stably won or do you think that this is something that governments will just continually mm. That is a fine question. That is a really good question. I don't know. The last few days I've been like quite, quite like enthused that I think there's a big fight to be had here and we're not, it's not a lost, losing battle yet. In the UK over the summer, they brought in this data retention um, emergency legislation and it took four days from when they introduced it to Parliament to when the, both the Commons and the House of Lords adopted it and it was just like a complete stitch up. And from the minute it started, we were like, we're never, we're never going to stop this. And I think, like, it seems to me that the government's done a shit job of making any justification for it so far. They've done it in a way, like, by bringing it in with... They've actually done themselves a disservice by bringing it in with these other whistleblower laws, I think, because it just makes them look like complete, like, overreaching, I think. And I've been surprised in the conversations I've had with my parents, who are normally, like, rubbish, quite liberal, liberal capital L people, conservatives, um, that, yeah, that they, that, like, they didn't have an... uh, a gut reaction that this is like a good thing necessarily like they were quite open to hearing why because actually old people are quite like they all think you know privacy online scary and the internet scary and so i think that there are some debates to be had i think there's this is one thing maybe that we could actually win here and i don't i don't have that sense that it's a it's a losing battle particularly because we have this european experience and we have this really strong tide in the in europe which says it's a bad idea so i think if if we're able to get um as i know efa's pushing really hard for if we're able to get first a, a longer period of time a good um committee put together to, to scrutinize this legislation and a bit it seems to me there's getting good public attention but a bit more public attention to this issue it might be something that we can stop hmm. I, I won't steal your thunder i'll just broadly say yeah i agree like every political fight is winnable if the effort is put in and uh, this is a long battle it won't it won't be won with a with a twibbon and a, a fancy slogan it'll be won through sustained politicking and i mean the politicking that counts which is still largely done on pieces of paper and telephone calls and face-to-face meetings rather than a whole lot of froth and bubble which will be washed away by the next football result or or x-factor winner um while this is the 60 something piece of legislation increasing the powers of the intelligence and law enforcement agencies in australia since 9-11 we have seen things wound back in the past we did see historically asio files cracked open and asio given a huge thump on the head and told to get back in their box uh, a generation ago uh, we saw the same thing happen about the same time in the United States. Both the FBI and the, the NSA and the CIA were all told to pull their head in and told they couldn't do certain kinds of things. And then it slowly all came back in again. So it's, it's, it's kind of... There is a tide in the affairs of men. <laughs> I, I can't remember the rest of it, but that's basically it. Um, 
yeah, things are winnable. I, I, I think it would be defeatist to say this is, that this is inevitable. Yeah. Uh, and I think at the moment, the profile this is getting in the media. Yeah. I mean, Carly and I were talking about this before. None of us thought that two years ago that sitting down and talking about the NSA was anything other than you did to your tinfoil hat mate or your friend who used to be in the army. Now it's front page news every week. And, and I'm surprised by that, mm. but it doesn't seem to be mm. going away. Mm. I think so. I think that it's great that organisations like EFF are doing the, the best they can to keep it on the agenda, and I think more and more support would be good. Say EFF, you meant EFF. I said EFA. (laughs) Carly Neist, please thank her for her time. Carly Neist is Legal Director of Privacy International and she was our guest on episode 12 of Corrupted Nerds Conversations with thanks to Electronic Frontiers Australia and the Australian Privacy Foundation. Episode notes and links are at CorruptedNerds.com. If you haven't already done so, you can subscribe to Corrupted Nerds either at iTunes or at SoundCloud or by RSS in your choice of software. And if you'd like to support this podcast financially or leave a tip, go over to the Skank Media website at skank.com.au slash tip. Well, I'm Stilgerian. Thanks for your company. See you next time.